I'm Chris Newman. Uh, I am Preston Taylor. And we're here today delving into Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto, a super seminal text in the field of post-humanism. And uh, Preston, what's this thing about? Oof. Um, where to start? So, uh, at least for me, I kind of read it as a, uh, you know, an attempt to alter our perception on a lot of things to better navigate a vastly and quickly changing world in technology as it is kind of upset a lot of things that we've been doing the same for a long time and I think this this book definitely uh, definitely pushes some ideas that uh, you know seeks to kind of dismantle some of that stuff yeah and how she does it is not by positing a fact, but by positing a myth. Mm. Instead of uh, whatever we would choose as the myth of humanism, uh, when I say the myth of humanism, the first thing I think of is that, that picture that's always put on the cover of Nietzsche, also Sprock, with the man standing above the mountaintop, oh, conquering yes. the world. Yeah. yeah, and I think like that that's sort of like an image of, of humanism, right? Like, like Beethoven hero, like uh, human subjectivity, not just over nature, but like, I don't know, fucking dominating everything, I guess. Yeah, I'd agree with you. You know, funny thing, I like for the longest time until I learned anything, just kind of assumed that was like a cover for Nietzsche and it's supposed to just be him. Just because I didn't know shit. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, like, oh yes, Nietzsche hiking in the mountains. But it was like an earlier painting by that really famous landscape guy who I, I don't remember his name, no, but it's, it's, he's got some good stuff. You know, it's not. I mean, it's a cool painting, yeah. but yeah, I think yeah. that's a fantastic. Uh, in the cane, doesn't it, doesn't it, he have like a cane? He's like on the top of a mountain with like a freaking cane or something. But anyway, so that. And a monocle, oh, yeah. a chain, uh -huh. and it's actually Mr. Peanut. Yeah, and he's like <laughs> on the backs of, and of course he's, he's obviously a man, right? Like that's something that is probably uh, in a, any humanist mythology we're going to do. I think there's a sad side to it where it's, it's probably, I don't know, going to be a man, I guess, is sort of that. Yeah, it's. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, can you think of any equivalent to that picture that's not a man? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that, like, okay, so, like, first wave feminism is going to be in is, is, like, a humanist endeavor, and, and, like, second wave, and, but Donna Haraway comes along and gives us a cyborg as our mythology mm. for post-humanism, which is distinctly not a man conquering a mountaintop. Also, I guess you could totally see that painting as not man conquering the world, but man, I don't know, gazing at the vast beyondness of the world. But no, I'm going to go with it's a man conquering the world. <laughs> I'm going to go with, and, and, and most importantly, a lone man, mm. right? Like it's not, it's not a collective or, or, you know, some sort of like colony of hybrid ants that we've hooked up to a human or something. And... Yeah, Haraway wants to say that we should think the cyborg. And what does that mean? So, at least the way that I read it is this this concept of of moving beyond the idea of like the uh, the ideal man, the ideal woman, what we're supposed mm -hmm. to be, our uh, you know 
the idea that life is is this quest for wholeness through whatever means may be necessary and instead says that the uh you know the way forward is through the cyborg it is that that blending of the technology and you know a little bit of uh a little bit of dissolving of like not only the individual but of like the concept of what you're supposed to be within this group as well and uh i kind of really enjoyed that idea of you know elusiveness and character almost like like she doesn't really pin down a lot what a cyborg i it is like she gives a lot of examples but she doesn't want to hem it into like a horizon line like a cyborg that's why I brought up, like, I don't know, ants being controlled by people to write, write my papers for me or something, right? Like, that would be, I think that would fit within her model. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree. I, um, I think, like, by very nature, the cyborg is, you know, by nature a confusion of where organic and inorganic meets and instead operating on its own, like... I don't know, still surviving without being a whole organism. And I kind of like the, the concept of, like, you know, getting rid of, uh, you know, like these boxes that we tend to put ourselves in a lot of the times. Yeah. And the expectations we'll put on ourselves if we, you know, dedicate ourselves to a different thought or cause. And I think that the hair, you know, Haraway's kind of pushing more towards, you know, almost less consistency. I think we've kind of talked about this before in the whole idea of like everybody's always mad when politicians are inconsistent. Yeah, and I was like, you know what else is inconsistent? And learning, learning shit is inconsistent. When you learn things, you change your mind. That could be seen as inconsistency. Like, I mean, I like I, I yeah. don't understand this obsession of, like, oh, well, he changed his mind, or he's flip-floppy, and it's like, well, maybe they learned things. Maybe we grow and change our minds because it's good for us. Well, yeah, I mean, although there is that flip-side thing of, like, you promise a lot. Oh, yeah. That, that, with the explicit knowledge that getting that done would be infeasible. Absolutely, yeah, definitely and not, not like diving into that. Sleepover. Yeah, 100% <laughs> with you there, but... um. Yeah, I mean, and she does it in a couple ways. So, like, um, she does gender, mm. race, and animals. And she has a couple great lines. Oh, and religion. I'm sorry. God, the whole thing begins with religion, right? Like, actually, what is the beginning? It's like, she says something amazing at the beginning that she oh, doesn't really bring back up. Blasphemy is not apostasy. I kind of liked that line a lot. That was pretty good. Yeah, what's the difference? Yeah, it, it definitely dives right into religion right off the bat. You know, we're talking about secular religious evangelical traditions, yeah. which are overwhelmingly present and becoming more so. It still just blows my mind. This book was written, what, 30? Yeah, so no, 85, 50, 95, 05. Yeah, almost 40 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. So, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we argue that the religious side maybe has gotten, gotten worse? Oh, absolutely. But I've also, you know, heard this whole theory that, like, this kind of stuff that we're seeing now 
was put into motion around this time period, back in like early eighties, mid eighties, is when you got like Reagan. And, yeah, oh, yeah, is when you know people started putting pieces together, and this is just the culmination of like forty years of work from. Yeah, one could even know, argue Christian that the right people that the Cold War, like the the most alarming symptom we could have even thought of, would have been earlier when we added under God. Pledge of Allegiance, right? Like during like a Cold War thing, like where the were the Christians versus the godless atheists. Right? Oh, right. Kind of opened the door. Yeah, so, okay, for me, when she says blasphemy has always seemed to require taking things very seriously, it's kind of like the difference between, like, lying versus bullshitting. Oh, that's you know? good. There's that Harry Frankfurt essay on bullshit where, like, to tell a... He goes, like, basically, if I remember right, to tell a lie, you have to know the truth to like really fulfill the conditions of it being a lie you have to know what the truth is but with bullshit know and you believe know. what the truth is because i think like with religion yeah. i think that's a really important distinction because in you know say my family's view i know the truth but i don't buy it for a minute so i think like their their vision of what the truth is i definitely do not by as factual if that makes sense oh so do you, do you kind of feel like the word truth is always legislated kind of on that divine Ooh. side like like on the scientific method like we know what's true in a limited in limited well i mean i'm not just limited but when we say true at the academy often often we use the word to either just mean accords with the facts mm. or like Okay, yeah. Is good good to the, distinction to the method, to bring up. right? Whereas, like, divine intervention is like, here's the truth arriving. So, the, the by blend, words, of, right? blend of two different brains here for yeah, me yeah. is, uh, you know, old school. Like, the truth is definitely something very, like, religious. It is, it is separate from what is necessarily facts. Yeah. Which is, you know, this is where, like, stuff like faith comes into play is, like, faith is believing in something you can't prove as being true. And that is contrary to what I believe as truth nowadays, which is, you know, concurrent to facts. I like, concurrent I like, facts that, I like that definition of it there. But we also use, I mean, we use it, I think, okay, so I use true to mean two different things. So the first would be accords with facts, like I, I am Chris or whatever. Uh, and then the second would be uh, like in a personal in the domain of meaning and phenomenology and mm. like, you know or like or the truth of theory or something like the truth of a method or some some way that like you have to have a certain amount of confidence in the method that you you'll have evidence for but i think it, it does aside from the evidence part i think you nailed the whole like religious side of truth there i mean like yeah uh, i you know you've picked a method i mean i think this is often mm -hmm the case with especially older people in religion nowadays that like even if there are cracks it's like well fuck i've been doing it this long what else am i i'm not gonna bail on it now i gotta have faith in this method at this point we gotta have a true well and and, and we're using the word method pretty lightly <laughs> loosely <laughs> here i mean i mean basically you know religion just tells you what to believe it's not really the method is like someone speaking has the truth stick yeah. i guess <laughs> like you know the preacher has the, the truth stick which is not i mean you know we use that obviously 
in an appeal to authority and disciplines, but there's a lot more evidence to compel. Like, you know, I think Todd McGowan knows more about Freud than I do, and so I would say that he has the truth of Freud in a certain weird sense, mm. or a truth of Freud, and that's moving it into that other way. I mean, you know, by definition, if you're reading phenomenology like Heidegger, I think the truth is going to mean something different. Mm. You know, and he's closer... His, his definition of truth is more um, back to Alethea, like a, like a revealing you know, truth slides into view, slides out, uh, yes. which has not very much to do with getting the car to run, I guess. Maybe it does. It probably does. I'm just being an idiot. But uh, back to the heroine. <laughs> I feel like um, I thought way too long. So in the heroine, she says at one point that under basically her model that she's proposing like basically evangelical right-wing christianity is child abuse yeah and i thought a lot about that because my first thought was like yeah that makes sense but then i don't know i don't know how do you feel about that so i think our current climate kind of touches on some of this stuff really well yeah. Because I like that our evangelical right really loves the term groomer these days. You know? Oh, yeah. Everybody's grooming these people for things. Um, but coming from someone who was ro- like raised in a strongly religious family, yeah. like, I've been doing enough drag shows to tell, like, be able to get a feel of what this grooming is they're talking about. And I spent the first 18 years of my fucking life being groomed. I have never been groomed at a drag show or pride event, any of that shit. I I mean, I just... It is so bizarre to to me. uh, You you come with a certain agenda that, like... Because you could totally defeat the definition of the word that, like, any agenda you have with a child is grooming which makes any teacher ever a groomer. So that's that's well, not really... I like, think, grooming is more specific for us, right? Yeah, like, so for, like... Actual grooming. Based on the way that I think that evangelicals and, you know, your right would define grooming is that, you know, you're altering a depiction of reality in order to further some sort of agenda. That is no different to me than religion now that I'm not, like, a part of that anymore. That, like... Word for word is exactly what every religious family does for their kids, Mm -hmm. is they give you an illusion of choice, but you're always free to make the right choice. So So I definitely get where they're coming from, like, the child abuse side of things, because it is... I, I think that, like, being brought up very religious is inherently restrictive to, like, just thinking in general. Is you're, like taught that some thoughts are bad and that thoughts are reality as well which is also just a terribly toxic thought process and it just uh i can definitely see where you know under haraway's model i i could definitely see some evidence for defining that as child abuse yeah i think that would be the side for the side against is like okay if we're in the post-humanist era then we're also in the era where um like we're really problematizing the individual's uh free will she doesn't really do free will a lot in this essay but like so for example like does child abuse like obviously there's cycles of abuse from kids 
where a kid's beaten by a dad who is beaten by his dad. Oh, yeah, the, that yeah. poem that Anna gave us, the, the your, like, the, your parents fucking suck. Oh, they did their your best, parents, they didn't know what up. the fuck they were doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, okay, so they do that, but, like, I, would, I guess I was wondering if there has to be some intentional act like like i've i've met like my i lived at a former i my, i would just move my my partner and i you know and and like we lived in this place where like i would consider the the mother to be abusive but like she also fits a really strong definition of abuse because she was like super aware of what she was doing wrong mm. and like i don't want to like obviously if someone's being attacked it'd be totally bad faith for the parent to go you know i know this is wrong but i was i was done <laughs> my parents did this to me so so let me do this to you but i think that like there is an aspect in this particularly religion where if you take out some elements of free will in the subject you're left with parents who don't know any better who don't know anything else Ooh. and like Obviously, it's their fault, and they should own that. But there is an element of a limitation there. Mm. I guess would be what I would say. Like a limit. Like they're not going to get there all the way, which makes it less. That might make it. I don't know if that makes it harder or easier for people later in therapy <laughs> to think. Oh yeah, they fucked you up, but they didn't have a choice. Uh, well, I mean, this is like <laughs> uh, I. I firmly believe that everything my parents did in raising me they it there was like never anything remotely abusive in that thought process yeah and it it's ever it's like everything my parents did they did because they truly believed it what it was best for me it's what you yeah. know would ensure that i have a happy healthy life later on I mean, they... It just happened to be wrong. <laughs> just, at least based for... I mean, you take a look at my older sister. Clearly yeah. worked with my oldest sister. She has a, as far as I know, happy, healthy life. Did everything the way they wanted. Yeah. But, you know, different strokes for different folks. Didn't quite, uh... They had diminishing returns with each child, I would say. That's funny. <laughs> By the time they hit me, it just... It wasn't clicking. And, uh... But I, I have never f remotely believe that my parents were were abusive so but does that conflict with her a little here does yeah it, uh, from the outside does it make her way maybe a little problematic in saying that i mean she's obviously making as many statements as she can as i mean I, de I definitely right? yeah and it's i i think that there's definitely an intention towards being like inflammatory with some of this stuff like yeah you know big statement there but on the other side of that, whether or not my parents intended it, you know, that shit lands you in therapy that you got to deal with later on. Well, it might together. make it worse if they didn't intend it, right? That was, what, that was the flip side, is it might, you know. Yeah. It, I, don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't know your brain. I, I, I think that, that 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 can definitely create a conflict with the whole, like, you know, if it's intentional, I think that makes it a lot easier to be like, fuck you, you can't control me, I don't have to have you in my life. Yeah. I still legitimately love my parents and want them in my life. There yeah. are just certain things that make me go, Ugh. Yeah. So, I, I don't know if it makes it easier, 
but I think it makes it a little trickier to navigate that relationship, at least at the point I'm at with yeah. working through it. I'm also dealing with, I, I think a lot of people deal with the whole, uh, that transfer with your parents from being seen as a child to an adult. Yeah. To where you're no longer seen as their child, you're seen as offspring and a peer, not just a kid. Because there are still some times with my parents where it's like, you know, you kind of still treat us like we're children and we don't know what we're doing, but, uh, yeah, you know, like, we're doing okay. Yeah, there you go. We're getting there. <laughs> All right, so going going back to another thing Haraway said, and I'm sorry, I'm going to, like, throw out a bunch of real big bombs, she says, but there were a couple moments. That was the first bomb that we just talked about was the scene from the side that she proposes although she does a little hedging like she says something like seen from this angle so i think i think what that does is maybe she's not really willing to say this is child abuse probably for all, all the reasons she's probably had this same conversation yeah exactly yeah. We just had <laughs> yeah but she elaborates right at the end kind of finishing up her m65 she elaborates on cyborgs and kind of hits us with everything. A cyborg is not innocent. It was not born in a garden. I like that. Mm. It does not seek unitary identity and so generate antagonistic dualisms without end or until the world ends. It takes irony for granted. One is too few and two is only one possibility. Um, I'm. What did she mean by that? <laughs> did you know on that last... One is too few and two is too many. One or two is only one possibility. Is that referring to like, like well, I, one? Yeah, I think she's that? playing off of something she had done earlier, where she said one is not enough, two is too many. Oh, it was the joke? Yeah. 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 So I I think with this that it plays into this idea of no like, I think we've kind of dived into this with Lacan too. Is like there is no unified mind. You don't know which one he's talking right now. Kind of an idea is that like the. Yeah. The the one is too few, the concept of you being like a unified being, like as a, you know, African American woman, you need to be this way and you need to aspire to do this, otherwise you're doing a disservice to your community. Mm, is yeah, that's a, that's yeah. not a I I don't think that's a progressive thought and I, I think the idea of the cyborg is that you need to be many things to navigate this technologically crazy world. And, and not just do many things. Yeah, you exactly. Gotta, you're, you're kind of are already perverse. Yeah, and also... Um, I also think it fits well in the idea that, you know, the Cyborg Manifesto is like, the future is not binary. Like, the, the, the yeah. two-gender system just isn't going to work in a technologically advanced world here. For the sake of survival, we just need to move past all that bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right. And then another thing also that I realized is two, two is only one possibility also re refers to the idea that, like, um, so the cyborg uh, is two, but she doesn't want to hem it in as to what a cyborg really is. Like, she gives a lot of possibilities, but she's not saying, like, the cyborg is necessarily this thing or that thing. So... Two is only one possibility, one being organic parts of the previous, the human, and the other being whatever non-organic or animal <laughs> parts are are going. I mean, I thought of a lot of stuff that we could probably work in here as being 
quote cyborg that we just would never think of as being cyborg, but I think maybe Haraway wants us to think of it as being closer. Mm. I mean, it, I didn't read the Companion Species Manifesto yet, but I will. But, like, um, it's a little different because there's still an idea of an autonomous agent in Haraway's cyborg. Like, there's while there might not be a unified eye, there's at least a fragmented eye. Mm. Whereas, like, the example I was trying to think of was, uh, like, a seeing eye dog. Oh. Because, like, a seeing eye, like, the dog is used, is, is, is really, like, yeah, I mean, part of the person. I mean, she talks kind of about, yeah. like, the, you know, people who use prosthetics and stuff is, I, I, I think that there is definitely a connection to that. And I like that you're also bringing, like, the animal part into it, rather than just literal machinery. Okay, I mean, all right, so I really like the manifesto. I think she's a great writer. I think she's very evocative. There's a lot of open-ended language. But I don't care about machines as much. I mean, I do, like, like I think I think there's some weird lines in the text that didn't age. Like, they, they either, if they tickled your fancy, they aged great, or they kind of come across as, like, she's nerved out by small things. Huh. Huh. Oh, they're going to get a lot smaller, <laughs> Haraway. Yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> well, like, it was like, wasn't there like a lot of teeny tiny watches and like the small little TV? Yeah, and the little and miniature TVs. The little miniature TVs. And, and the and pixels in video games. And Oh, did she bring up the pixels in video games? Uh, something, something like, like that. that. Okay. But I, I found that a little odd. Like, not off. It wasn't off-putting because it's so neutral. It just... It, it, I, it didn't go anywhere. I feel like, don't small thing. Isn't that going to be necessary in the concept of a cyborg? Well, yeah, and I guess there was sort of a negative tinge on when she. She was. It's very positive about embodying our technological world. I mean, right now, we uh, for those listening, we had to stop over. We had to start over because we set up our mics in a place where we weren't looking at each other, so we had to re reset up the mics that were looking at each other, and. You know, there's a sort of communion with the object, I guess, if we're going to do a Haraway talk, where it's like, yeah. you're, you know, the object only... It's a, On one hand, it's a tool in the Heidegger sense, but on the other hand, you know, it's... It blocks or aids in something deeper. I mean, I, I actually probably shouldn't have brought in the Heidegger tool thing, because that's totally irrelevant. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> it's pretty deep in Heidegger. Um, but, like, yeah, I feel like... Um, I feel like I wanted, you know, in a manifesto, I do wonder sometimes also if, like, a manifesto is not the place to start listing ways we could be technological. Because her lists were great. Ooh, right? They were, the they were great. Part. Yeah, they were the best part. We should, let's, let's read, like, let's the... Let's go yeah, to let's, some lists. And they weren't, like, people have arms, people wear glasses, people have pacemakers, and they wear shoes. Like, that would be... I feel like I'm defeating my own point because I'm glad she didn't do that, but I do I do want some of that. Like, what, you know, what is, what's going to happen? But with the lists, it was much more evocative. Um, do you want to do the 28, 29 ones? What yeah. Are, yeah let's, what are so your favorites? Let's just go right off the bat. What did you think representation being transferred to simulation? Oh, um, we're going to get to Baudrillard soon. Ooh. And Baudrillard is the thinker of the 
simulacra and simulation Ooh. and and um and basically the idea is like if you're, if you're representing reality in a um, less indirect fashion um i mean sometimes it seems to be for some thinkers directly representing reality um and simulation um is more of a is more of a copy um but it's not a fake Mm. It's not like uh, you have two top hats and the simulated one is fake. It's closer to the line that uh, a lamp in a video game still uses real electricity. (laughs) (laughs) It's like basically still a lamp in a lot of regards. Okay. Um, And in simulation, I I also just like, okay, this is maybe not very theoretical, but again... For everyone at home, we're designing this podcast not for people who have PhDs in philosophy. This is two college-educated dudes reading. <laughs> and we've read, we read a lot of continental theory. We're going to read a lot of personal essays. And so we're probably going to make a lot of missteps that if there are philosophy oh, people, so they're going to write in and be like, hey, don't do that. And we would love that. Please, oh, that, was, that would be yeah. the best if so we could I'm, just get a bunch of corrective mail so that's all being said that um i'm sure there's ten thousand people in the world who are going to have a better and more accurate difference between representation to simulation but one thing as a as a more art guy i when it's representation i was thinking of like painting and realism in a certain sense Mm. in a weird way like depicting something in the quote-unquote real world and by the time you get to simulation it's not that you're not, it's that that binary just isn't active. You're not really, you can go into a virtual gallery and see whatever was from the era of representation. Ooh. The, the layers. I mean, at what point, like a print of a famous painting, has that reached simulation at that point? Or is that still a representation of the representation? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think Benjamin knows because he, he wrote that essay, the the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. <laughs> so I feel like I feel like that would be one that we're probably going to read. Um, all of the people we're referencing so far, I'm just assuming uh, Haraway is thoroughly absorbed mm. without really needing to reference. It seems um, okay. So there's that one. Here's one I got for you. What about what do you think the difference between so on the left, she has the old world is Freud and the new world is Lacan. <laughs> What's that difference? Because Lacan is, you know, in his mind, a faithful reader of Freud, right? Whether or not that's true is obviously, obviously it's not true all the time, but you know. <laughs> Oof. Um, I mean, at least in like the little bit of Lacan reading we've done, um, I've definitely... I don't know. I feel like he has a uh, a better representation or simulation mm. in this age of uh, of some of these concepts that you know Freud kind of pioneered. Yeah, I think that uh, Lacan's interpretation and whatnot of them is a. I don't know, like, I mean, he's one of the few people that were like, I don't know, he might be right. Just, just because a lot of that stuff just kind of fits really well. Yeah, especially when it's, when it's dealing with anything 
anything fragmented. Yeah. You know, or the subject of truth versus the, 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 you know, the ego has knowledge, but the unconscious can always come in and undermine knowledge with the truth. Mm. And I'm actually surprised we didn't bring up Lacan's version of truth when we were saying what the truth was earlier. But for, for Lacan, the, the unconscious is on the, the, the truth is on the side of the unconscious for Lacan. Mm. You know, at any moment, the, the ego's knowledge can be undermined by the truth, which comes from the unconscious which is different than freud's mapping of a clear ego super ego id structure i mean i guess i guess i was a little mean to lacan like obviously he's reading into freud all these things but still generating new concepts that he mm. thinks are in freud a lot but that they're not always i mean i'm right now doing a deep dive into freud and i'm a little more on the side of they're in freud but Freud's often pretty evocative, and I've found you can take his stuff a lot of different ways. Mm. And and he, he's very open. And you know, Lacan says it in Seminar One. Like Lacan's like a super open thinker. Freud's like a super open thinker. And that. But okay, I was thinking way simpler actually on the difference between Freud and Lacan because we, we immediately went into like theory and stuff. But like I was thinking like Freud analyzing poorly Victorian women and obsessed with like mommy daddy me complexes mm. and very patriarchal and tied to this like outdated structure of family and then Lacan saying yeah like those structures are in play in language more more than in oh. a literal you know like like the father becomes like the name of the father oh you know which I don't know, it was a lot more convincing for me when we're talking about, like, the phallus is not, like, a penis. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a penis, often, in Freud. I mean, it's just a penis. In the case studies, if I'm, if I'm reading right, it's just it's a, it's a penis. And in Lacan, it's, like, definitely not a penis. <laughs> Although, yeah. I mean, it can be, but it can also be a watermelon. I don't know, it can be whatever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it can be, you know, the sign of control, but it's, it's, it's a lot more... It's a lot harder than Freud, actually, mm. to talk about, and a lot more immediately, like, for me, theory. So, I don't know, that difference... Okay, what other, what other one did you like? Uh, the one right after that. So, sex, genetic engineering. Yeah, what is that? Okay, like? so, are we talking about, like, like, sex as in male-female, or are we talking about, like, sex... And organisms fuck. Like, yes, like, exactly. We're talking about fucking, and in this world, that's just going to be genetic engineering. Which is going to be more like... Oh, that's a weird thought. That wasn't. I don't know if that was in the text. You know, it's funny. I, I went from sex, like, like, I'm such a bad biology guy. I don't know. You know, like... Um, the, the DNA mixes, and you have, you know, you have a mix of DNA. I'm sorry. I'm betraying my complete, absolute ignorance of biology. But there's also um, copying of the DNA. Like, there's certain single-cell organisms, right? Like, you is it eukaryotes that do budding? Oh, yeah. yeah, asexual reproduction. Asexual reproduction. That's the word I was looking for. Oh, my God. And when I saw genetic engineering, I immediately went, oh, it seems like that's closer to asexual reproduction somehow. Like, you're selecting... But it's not. It's, I'm just wrong on that. That was a wrong. Well, impression. I don't know. Like that. That's kind of a vague one that we don't. I thought that we'd get into that one a little bit more as we got later on here, but 
the eye. It does she mean like you can select for eye color or number of livers? Please choose one. Or is number of livers she showing her cards as a eugenicist, and only only the strong will be allowed to breed? It's the future of genetic engineering. I mean, isn't that the that's the worry that everyone since Dolly the sheep? You know, isn't that kind of what we've been worried about? I mean, yeah. I don't know. People were pretty into eugenics until Hitler. And then people were like, ooh, maybe that ain't a boat I want to be on. That was like a yeah, big like, thing in like America Helen for Keller. a while. Yeah, like, I mean, all these people were, yeah, if it was like, what was it? Someone said to me once, I forget, they were a smart person, but I shouldn't, don't take my mom on this. What is it? Wasn't it like, if you were a highly educated person at the turn of the century, you were most likely, in some way, pro-eugenics? Yeah, so like statistically. Yeah, like a lot like of people were into that stuff. Yeah, that's so, that's so weird, and that that's kind of come back with a vengeance. I feel like in the next fifty years, but you know what's gonna come back as, and this is something I think is totally where it's 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 definitely a return of that, is it's it's gonna be totally tied up with class, mm. class and income, you know, and I think that's always it, been like semi prevalent, yeah. and like we still joke about it, but I think the Every Christmas, every Hallmark movie really grinds the whole Prince and the Pauper trope into your brain all the time. Yeah, because if it was super common, they'd probably stop making movies about it as being super romantic, right? I just thought of a sci-fi story that I'm sure has already been written, which is that in the future, this is kind of like already H.G. Wellesy, but like like um, the rich class and the proletariat can no longer like they've the the rich has been. Su- so genetically engineering themselves that they can no longer oh, mate with the proletariat. And then the Romeo and Juliet story would be we have to get over the literal abjection of the fact that they're trying that they can't like actually have sex. But I don't know, right? Yet, like, <laughs> you need to also like bring in the other aspect of like the higher rich people race due to all this genetic engineering start to fall apart and the house of cards is starting to tumble. Like, so like, 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 a, like Russian aristocracy, the joke about it, inbreeding in a way. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So they start like trying to steal poor people to like. Yeah. Or they you go know, the way of the peacock and they engineer over much for like sexual preference and then they become like useless in the world oh! or something. Like, like they can't. Like, you know, the birds of paradise with the long flowing feathers, but that are like have no. At least. Yeah, term, they're like. No use. Yeah, exactly. Oh pretty good yeah, maybe we should call the podcast uh continental theory turns into sci-fi novels with chris and preston yeah we can do a mix of that <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah well okay uh one last one on here and then i feel like we could do a couple more things um okay the one that helps us on the left side on page 29 it goes organic sex role specialization which is like i love that because that's the most like AI chat GPT way of describing human. <laughs> like, 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 the man put the dick in the place, <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> and then uh, it switches on the on the right side to optimal genetic strategies, and mm. and I do wonder, like, like one thing she's definitely aware of, but doesn't highlight super as much. She does a little bit in this, but not as much as I think she does probably nowadays. Is like. I mean, isn't this all going to become class? Not all class, but, like, if, if we dissolve racial hierarchies, it becomes class, right? Like, capitalism can do a lot with dissolving certain antagonisms in Prague. It can move things forward. But 
don't think I can dissolve that one. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> you know? I've also, you know, I, I think there's a pretty good connection between class and race. Of course. And there's, you know... But it seems like, I mean, like, look, like on the left hand, two dunks goes, racial chain of being. That's the old model, which we're probably still in fully right now because the only way I can explain Trump is racism, <laughs> right? Like, it's like, why aren't you left-wing? Oh, it's, okay, never mind, never mind. But, uh, <laughs> like, why aren't you on the left? You're all discontent with, oh, they got you on the race and gender stuff. Okay, <laughs> so racial chain of being is replaced by neo-imperialism, United Nations humanism, and I wonder if that one failed, right? Because, like, think about COVID, right? Like, okay, so United Nations humanism, I'm going to just extrapolate wildly and think about how on the right there was so much furor over the control that we allowed doctors to have. Mm. And doctors in non-government, well, I mean, like, obviously they're in the governments, but, like, like non-elected positions, I guess. And on the right, they were, like, really concerned about I mean, it's hard because their concerns were kind of, like, insane. But, like, but like, so I'm trying to, like, I'm not trying to steal man them. I'm just, like, I'm wondering if that binary isn't really actually what mm. is true for, like, I wonder if COVID proved that we're still on the racial chain of being side Ooh. of things. Because, <laughs> like, United Nations humanism, you know, the WHO, which, you know, it's not the United Nations, but I'm just, like, going big structures that are not specifically state governments, I guess you know, exerts a lot of power to a right-winger. Now, I mean, obviously, like, you could argue that it was a good thing that we got together and tried to get together, but maybe my, my own reading is that we, we, we failed miserably to get together. I mean, mm. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we didn't fail miserably? I don't know. Had where we can <laughs> come together and fight this as one. I've always found a reason to be like, no, well, it's your fucking fault, and then but not all, I mean, not all, I mean, the American Revolution, I mean, there's lots of times when people come together to do a cause and get it, get the cause done. Okay, so. But not, not that one. So, so here's a good one that I did not know of. I was like, yeah. oh, that kind of sucked. Okay, so I was always under the impression that, like, World War II came around and we we're all like, oh, yeah, we're going to, we, we got to get together and fight the Nazis. After, you know, yeah. Pearl Harbor, we're like, yeah, let's get involved with war. And America came together and, you know, helped out with that world war. Yeah, you want to know what Americans did not like during World War II? When they tried to make them ration, people got fucking pissed. Oh, yeah. Like, real pissed. Suddenly weren't a part of the war effort anymore when you can't tell me how many fucking potatoes I can have with dinner. Fuck you, I'm an American. Right. And that's, it's the same fucking attitude that we kind of have all over the place now is, fuck you, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm an American. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah, always I mean, had a right. hard time yeah. coming together. Yeah, we, we sort of. I mean, unless it's, like, fighting. I mean, I mean, okay, like, obviously you're giving an example where we didn't come together, but wouldn't you still say we came together good enough? Oh, the fighting aspect of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, we, we were, we, you know... But but you're right. I mean, we didn't support, like, like vets. Well, or, you know, like, funny or, thing or, is, you know, like, fucking when D-Day happened, you know, yeah. when we stormed Normandy, dude, Germany didn't even know America was a part of that invasion. Because yes. they're like, no way is America gonna cooperate well enough, nor do they have the numbers built up for something like this. They're not gonna be here in time. 
Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. So, like, uh, the our fighting aspect of it, they got their shit together, like, fucking fast. But, yeah. uh, people at home were a little less, uh, less willing to give up the daily comfort for the war effort. You know what I mean? Uh, hey, fair enough. It seems no. like, the, you know, if you make the... You can come for my potatoes, but as soon as you get my coffee... Get <laughs> <laughs> <to> solid points. <laughs> okay, okay, wait. Uh, great point. I think you win that battle. Actually, maybe, yeah, maybe I have to think about how I, how I mean that. But this is why we're not a level one civilization. This is why we're not a level one. This oh. is why we're still sitting at like point five, trying to trying to get out of trying to get out of zero there. That's like that's like I was talking to my friend Matthew, who like he's read tons of posthumanist texts, and he's often talking about the idea of. You know the human is so is is ultimately what's limited, mm. and that like he was just saying this on Sunday. He floated the idea. He wasn't like owning it because it's a it's a he kind of you know he's like I'm I'm close on this side and which makes sense because he was like oh I just think we have to we talked about how we have to change human brains in order for that to make sense. If you oh want to get to a level God. one scenario, you need to be oh. super on the right corner of. You know, maybe we need to be, yeah, something of a cyborg to, you know, get to that excellent, which is one of the things that I thought about a lot reading this one, is I was like, this is, seems like a, an attempt at a pathway to level one civilization kind of stuff, and, you know, moving towards that. Because at this point, like, you know, you're, you're never going to reach level one if you're still fighting over borders and land and shit like until we've gotten to the point where like hey so and so on this side of the world doesn't have it we got a lot let's send someone over because we got to find some other planets like we're still working on harnessing the energy that is constantly created on the earth that we're just like i don't know volcanoes are cool <laughs> it's like okay here's a real question like like briefly in akira did we reach level one but it was just in one dude. <laughs> Ooh. It's not, I mean, that's, that's wrong, but, but it's funny. Okay, so, another but one. people were still warring, yeah. so they blew everything up instead. Yeah. That one's great. That one's great. That one's actually, I would say that Akira is more on the side of, like, Death Drive than mm. it is on the side of Haraway. You know, mm. it's more on the side of, like, I mean, I mean, I think Akira is, like, if there is a if if the death drive is a coherent concept, I I think it it's Akira, <laughs> right? Like I don't know, like it has to oh, be. That, oh, I think that's really spot on. There's so many themes that I think would be associated with the death drive. I mean, your main characters are bullet bikers in a fucking street gang. Yeah, that's I mean, a pretty right? death yeah. drive style of life. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Like, there's gotta be. There's got It's all. It's like the whole thing is. That's why it's so dark. Is because it's it's just pervasively. Death Drive, and you reach this sort of sublime. Now it shall all be clean. Oh, <laughs> you know, fucking. <laughs> okay, for people at home, there's there's a comic that like. I sometimes use the phrase end stage ideology. It's a really bad term, but I'll I'll find a better one, which is like um, but the best example of it is is Mr. Clean. There's a there's a meme where it's Mr. Clean, looking out from a, a faraway hill on a city. And a, and a meteor is about to hit it, and, and he's saying, now it shall all be clean. <laughs> and it's super cringy, it's bad, but I don't know, it's fine. Okay, one other last one from this table before we move on, that I just was like, let me get another one first, but like, I, I, I have, I, I didn't get it. Um, 
and I can kind of get the threads, like when it goes bourgeoisie novel, realism becomes science fiction, postmodernism. Oh, by the way, that's our answer. That's a, that helps us with representation versus simulation, right? Mm, yeah, that's okay. It's kind of giving you a pedagogical line there. Uh, okay, so I get the first part. You get microbiology and tuberculosis becomes immunology and AIDS. So I guess I get AIDS, but isn't AIDS part of the racial chain of being that puts LGBT people at the bottom? I mean, it's not racial, it's gendered, but, you know, it's, it's gender and sexuality, and, but it, AIDS to me is, is, is like non-planned eugenics for the 80s, right? I mean, it took forever, you know, act up, and, you, and it, it took until the 90s for the mainstream world and government to, to give a shit, and, and they could have given a shit. You know, and, and so the, for me, that's like firmly on the side of this whole group of people has leprosy, and we could probably do some things to help them, but because of our bigotry, we're just gonna let them die, right? It seems, it seems like AIDS should be on the left side. But then I real, I just realized something. It's nineteen eighty-five. Oh, 85. Yeah, oh I was God. just about to say, oh. I was like, oh. <laughs> but unfortunately, I think that yeah. highlights that, like, at the time period, they probably thought. That was going to be a big fucking deal that we were going to have attention on. We were going to deal with this. Well, it had been... Okay, 85... i got to look at my history, but it had been going since 81, right? I mean, it was already, at the Academy, wildly well-known as an issue. People were trying to sound alarms in the 80s. I wonder if this is her acknowledging that and mm. not really... I wonder if this isn't even, like, about the, man, the manifesto. If it's, like, just, like, we have to throw this shit in here because, like... But I don't know. I want to. I want to read more about that. But okay, that's actually not the one that I had no idea. Uh, tuberculosis. Um, I got nothing. I mean, I, I got. I got something. Okay, so I, I, I guess you know it's this feminine. It's coded feminine, and there was a lot of like writing about it being attractive. It was a wasting disease where you died and vomited blood, and it's like horrifically disgusting to me. But like, oh, uh, but like it was you know considered attractive in the 19th century but like i don't know really yeah yeah it's like you know it's like white skin and i'll, I'll double check I the mean, source on that i don't know red dead red dead redemption 2 okay uh spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't played it you fucking die of tuberculosis at the oh. end. <laughs> okay you get tuberculosis <laughs> from some guy oh. you're like collecting money from oh yeah and it's like a the the big driving factor in like him coming to terms with all the shitty stuff he's done in his life and, you know, whether or not he's a good person. <laughs> he, he ain't looking fucking good at the end of that. It's like a, it's like a fucking, um, um, you know, in Tombstone. What's his name? Well, wait, well what's his name embodies the oh, attractive, the, the attractive aspect oh, of shit, tuberculosis? Oh, shit, you're right. That's yeah, a great yeah. example of it because yeah. Doc Holliday always has, you know, girl hanging off his shoulder and, uh... <laughs> I'm your Huckleberry. He's got fucking tuberculosis. And everyone, we still find him attractive somehow. I, I mean, mean I'm, I'm a little creeped out, but you know, it's okay, I guess. Val Kilmer's greatest role. <laughs> but, but isn't it implying that tuberculosis is being superseded by AIDS? That I was looking at this one are too. They, they just like don't seem socially that related. I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. Maybe I just have to use my imagination a little more. I. I mean, is it like they were big diseases of, sp like, they were big social diseases. time periods? Yeah, like it was a, but it was a social disease, right? Like, like, uh, like, like tuberculosis. 
was in literature, if I remember right, I mean, I've seen it portrayed as like a positive thing, like a, like a, in a weird way. I mean, I mean, it, it's obviously a horrible thing. I mean, no, I'm, I'm not wishing tuberculosis on anyone, but like, like an AIDS is more of um, targeted communities. So I guess I guess the connection is tuberculosis targets the 19th century femininity in the representations, mm. whereas AIDS targets masculinity maybe i mean uh, that's a stereotype I mean, a lot of people uh, from across the spectrum die with aids but like you know it was thought of as more of a man a gay man disease yeah i, mean, I don't I, I don't know that that, that I, it's I, kind I, of lateral movement though to me i mean in a certain sense like we're not going anywhere vertically or maybe we are i don't know yeah i i don't know that that one was uh A stretch for me. I, 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 I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. Okay, so we're both we're both gonna admit defeat, and maybe someone from the literature studies world can can help me out and help Preston out on this. Um, okay, so what else? Um, do you want to do the other? I think we got to do those other lists. The yeah. The where we uh, what is it? Have to just survive the diaspora. Yeah, and then oh, I have I have a thing we may want to end on. I have an idea. So let's let's go surviving the diaspora, which is on page. Where are we? Oh, I found it. Forty six. Alrighty, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna dive into some of these lovely lists that she brings up here on page forty six. Um, I mean, the home one definitely has some uh, some interesting connections, which I was. I was curious as we dive into these, you know, she says, you know, the issue is dispersion, the task is to survive the diaspora. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, I know she says that, like, these aren't supposed to be, like, necessarily a string of, like, this causes this causes this kind of a thing, but, um, I mean, how, how did you read these lists? What was this uh, dispersion for you as you made your way through these? I guess it's like the, the problems of the new future or the, the, um, the phenomena of the new future. Because mm. some of them are value neutral. I mean, home-based businesses and telecommuting got like... <laughs> so I was like, well, she's right on that one. <laughs> I mean, for obvious reasons because of the pandemic. But like some of them, I mean, like intense domestic violence has to be a liminal thing where we're not cyborgs mm. right because like i mean I, I think she's obviously positing the myth as a good thing that we should strive for or right. at least that we're headed towards and, and uh intense domestic to... violence is not a good thing so. i uh, i think you have a hard time <laughs> spinning those three words into anything positive yeah i mean unless it's like the intense domestic violence of looney tunes or something but like yeah <laughs> Which is not what she meant. <laughs> when uh, Bugs finally marries Elmer Fudd, that seems like there'd be some intense domestic violence. Yeah. But well, I guess it'd be more the they'd an, always the go home happy at the end of the night. Yeah, it'd be the Animaniacs. Oh, that, that oh. Would be it. <laughs> okay, that whole show is nothing but intense domestic violence. Um, yeah, I think it's like the problems and the also the symptoms. I mean, I guess the word symptoms Ooh. would be like reinforced simulated nuclear family is a symptom. 
And I think that is a symptom of the now. I mean, you have people, the reason why, uh, you know, trans people are being called groomers is in part a small part, but still a part because they're undermining what some people view as the nuclear family, Mm. Mm -hmm. which is like not, you know, I mean, that already is like a fantastic object that's, I mean, you know, that's just a fantasy object, right? There's, that's a object petit ah, right? Ah. Like that's the the, the white picket fence, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, urban homelessness, migration, all spot on there but module architecture <laughs> is that not the most spot on description yeah. for all these bullshit cookie cutter houses that are popping up everywhere in the valley nowadays you can have plan one or plan two or if you're feeling salty we have a plan three for you special folks modular architecture they're all basically the same house they're just moving things around because they're made to be easily modified. And, and Salt Lake City has this incredible dichotomy between intense personal anarchism of the home. Like, like if you walk around certain neighborhoods of Salt Lake City, no, not only do you know two houses look alike, but no two properties are the same size. Oh. And then there's other parts where it's like the freaking exact opposite. You'll and drive it's, it's through a neighborhood so... and you're like... This house, this house, this house, this house were built by the same person. This one, this one, this one, this one, built by the same person. That's what my parents' neighborhood yeah. is a lot like before people started tearing them all down and building their own things that all yeah. look well, like, alike. <laughs> and my, my neighborhood, the, my old neighborhood was like the funniest Frankenstein's monster. We're on the one, if you walk two minutes to the like left of my house, so like uh, uh, west, it's uh, low-income apartments. And then there's cookie cutter duplexes that are all built by the same people. And then there's my house, which my landlord added a second story to. So it's a four bedroom duplex, which is pretty weird. It was really weird. And then, and then like if you go three hundred yards the other way, it's complete McMansionville. Oh, right. Just those hideous, <laughs> yeah. giant houses. But in between there, there's also those low income apartments. Yeah, it's smack so dab in the middle for no reason. And then. So it's kind of like it's kind of a mix of, of both all at once, and then occasionally you just have a house built by some architect that's totally individual and has nothing to do with anything else. And and, and the funniest thing is that Anna and I made a joke where it's all transitional architecture. So two doors down from my house, there's a five bedroom duplex. Remember, mm-hmm. and we called it the McDuplex. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, modular architecture. Oh man, and, you know, and Salt Lake City is is just so rife with with the extremes of individual expression of houses and then mixed with the exact opposite yes so moving into our market area i think one of my favorites that definitely seemed to be a little bit of future reading intense market abstraction commodification of experience tell me there is not a huge market nowadays of selling you an experience yeah I, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, are yeah. Are B&Bs not your little attempt to live in a giant house you'll never be able to afford for a couple days, trash it with your family for a little while, and then you can go back to your normal life. But you got to experience what it was like to own a home on the beach for a little while. It's like the, the time-sharification of all reality. Oh, right? fuck! 
And like, and like, like the, the, in Bob's Burgers, the other joke where it's like, I, he pressed that dichotomy super hard. There was a guy, the dentist, they go and visit his timeshare, and it's like, I have sole ownership over this for a couple days. Right? I have, like, I have sole ownership of a timeshare for two weekends of the year, blackout dates excluded. Yeah, and like, you two can absolutely have this property to yourself completely with these other people. <laughs> oh yeah i mean it's so another good one that i think this is becoming increasingly more common which learning about i was like oh fuck that i'd rather not dude that's like most people who own houseboats down in lake powell it's like a group of them that own the houseboat it's essentially like a timeshare okay so you you can experience living the high life but also clean it up after the other people who own it who don't fucking clean it up and all that fun shit. Just, but the the idea of like selling an experience is just it's everywhere nowadays. I mean, another one of my favorites. That's yeah. The commodification of an experience. People who go on vacation and take surfing lessons. I. You took scuba lessons. No, uh, we were already certified and expanded our certification. Yeah. The difference being, anybody can learn how to scuba dive. Surfing is not something you learn how to do in an hour while you're on vacation. Oh, okay. Like, and, and but they sell you this experience, like, oh yeah, you can surf too. You know what you're gonna be doing for most of that hour? Desperately trying to stand up on the fucking board. Of but course. they sold you the experience that you're going to be riding the tube. You think they got pictures and videos when they're selling you lessons of people continually falling off a board in shark-infested waters down in Florida? Hell no. They got people going through the tube and doing cool shit. But you're not going to get that in a vacation. But they're just selling the experience. Okay, so I feel in the land of theory, this one notion has gone through already an incredible amount of development so two theorists that really talk about this an incredible amount are Slavoj Zizek and Mark Fisher and we're going to do both obviously at some point but um so okay so in I think this is in Zizek's concept of interpassivity but also in Mark Fisher in a much more negative way in a, in a, in a lot of great works um like you go and you buy a watch because you saw in an ad that if you have that watch you are you have a family Victus. and you have yeah you won you're the humanist Sleek thing yeah you're the you're the man on the mountain of yes the yes that, right and yet you know you work 80 hours a week and so you'll never be that but the watch sort of i mean i this is maybe way too far but the watch gets to experience it at least <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's that's way too interpassive for normal conversation, but yeah, maybe a little. Well, the, I, I, I mean, I think uh, I, a, a good yeah. one for that same idea, but replace that with a uh, a four wheel vehicle. So you know yeah. you want to be the outdoor rugged man, so you get yourself a Range Rover, but you work your ass off all the time, so you never actually go out into the into the forest and, and venture off in your four-wheel vehicle which is always a simulation and it's depiction but anyway. the vehicle <laughs> gets to uh gets to experience like you get to experience being rugged and outdoorsy through having the vehicle not through going outdoors but you still get to 
you, you get to have that experience because you have a four-wheel vehicle, right? Yeah, and part of the being of that object are these qualities that the object obviously doesn't have on its own, which are freedom and... Yeah. You know, you buy the fancy car to go work the dead-end job. Yeah, you buy the sports car so you can get around fast, but you live in L.A. and can't actually drive the car above 20 miles an hour due to traffic. It's like, but good like, thing you bought that Ferrari. <laughs> and, you know, like, so my parents and I used to watch 24, and we always talked about, I mean, I'm going to make this a little bit more pithy than, than the way we talked about it, but like, like the greatest fantasy in 24 is getting anywhere in under an hour in LA, right? Like, they would drive anywhere. But, but it's part of the fantasy, but it also is the idea that experience is something not only that you can outsource, but that you can enjoy vicariously. Mm, absolutely. I mean, a lot of our national... Have you ever been to, have you ever been to Yellowstone? Yeah, of course. Okay, I... I feel like I would have adored Yellowstone if it were not filled with seas of people that you're slowly walking around. You have to avoid the thought process that, wow, I'm actually not seeing very much, and this is like being in a ride, like a line at a theme park all day, every day, just nonstop. Yeah, yeah, and, and, but, and the, that's, that's why I always went to the Bighorns. Because no, no one was at the big parks. See, this is why and I like the smaller parks. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, right? I, yeah. I honestly don't know if I'll ever go to Zion's again because of how popular it's gotten. Yeah. But, and I don't know if this is just, like, explosion of a lot more travel lately and whatnot, but, you know, I grew up going to these places and, like, not seeing a whole lot of people. You get to venture a lot more. The more people that come, the more they advertise, the more they're restricting what you can do within these parks because people are idiots and destroy everything. Even the signs, people are still just like, oh, I don't care that that says do not walk off path. I gotta get this picture over here. There was a woman today courting Yellowstone by a bison. You know, yeah. Um, but, like, the, 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 like, selling of the idea of, like, oh, yeah, you too can be natural and have this great family experience and everything there. Like, when you really go, it's, it's just not the experience, I think, that you're sold. But, you know, you went to a national park. Like, the bus tours that go all across America to all the parks. Yeah. You're not going to see enough to really enjoy any of these. No. But you're going to get enough of a hint yeah. that, you know, you can say you experienced the American West from a bus. Which they were doing in the 19th century on the trains. You know, similar concept, oh. although it would have been a little bit more hairy then. But, um, yes. But, this is all also on the critical implicitly negative side of, of human subject like of human subjectivity right like this is we're, we're framing this as a thing first of all that maybe we don't participate in that we absolutely do um all the oh, time <laughs> you know absolutely I, mean, I think it's inevitable to avoid i yeah. own a jeep <laughs> yeah with the, with the great uh um you know dinosaurs on the back but but i love it it's great you also do drive it a lot but that's because your other car died but <laughs> um, but but the positive side, and I can't believe I'm going to argue this is a positive, and I never would have done this before COVID, is yeah. But like you know, okay, so the, the people are bad, and all that stuff. So just just do a just do a virtual reality tour of Yellowstone, and it'll be it'll be better. It'll be it'll be more real. Ooh. That's like that's a little drone tour with a VR headset. Be pretty cool. Yeah, because there's going to be no people, and it's going to be. 
catered to you, and, and you'll, you'll probably see more wildlife than actually is still a species. I feel like you'd need to do some reframing in your mindset, though. Because aren't you inherently, like, in the back of your brain going to be like, yeah, but this wasn't real? No, 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 I don't think so. I think, I think, I think, okay, here's where I'm going to do maybe a little psychoanalysis here. I'm a little nervous about this because this is a pretty big stab in the dark. So, yeah, your ego does, but I don't know if your unconscious does. Oh. I don't know. So, like, like for example, I mean, I literally, before COVID, I never, so during COVID, I played Breath of the Wild, and it was great, and it was like, oh, it's, I'm really glad I had this video game. It wasn't until after COVID that I realized the super obvious facts of the game that helped me enjoy the game. Like, fucking just being outside. Oh. Huh. And then oh, now, okay, now, you, 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 know? you, you threw a pretty good wrench. You, you threw a pretty good wrench in there. Because shit, yeah. aren't video games a commodification of experience? I'm never, no matter what happens in my lifetime, am I going to get to live way back in the day as a Viking and raid pre-medieval England and tear down monasteries and all that fun shit. But you know what I can do? Play a fucking video game where I get to do that. Is that not a commodification of the experience of being a fucking Viking? Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of is. I think it helps if there's in-purchase, in-game purchases. Well, there are, but I ain't buying that shit. Oh, uh, there you go. I mean, yeah, I think there's that. I also think there's there's another turn that Baudrillard would really like us to make. We'll read Baudrillard and you'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean. But, like, um, it's not just that you know, I enjoyed the game for these reasons that I wasn't fully aware of or really wasn't aware of that were, like, pretty obvious to anyone else. Because remember that, like, any psychoanalytic theorist will tell you that the picture of the unconscious is deeply below is the opposite. The unconscious is, is on the surface. Mm. It's just something you can't see um, for probably pretty interesting reasons during COVID. Um, but, like, uh, another... The, the final turn is I was driving through to Park City and I already told you this quote but like every time I drive outside of the city in Utah I think oh you know this this really is it's like almost as good as some of the hills in Zelda <laughs> oh, that's uh that's good I like that it's it's a little horrifying. I mean, I guess I'm not really sure. I, I don't know why I'm putting that on the side of the positive. I think the I think the COVID Zelda experience was overwhelmingly positive, though, right? Like, it was this thing that came along at the time to help that mm. I didn't realize its full obviousness until much later. Okay, I, I got a good one for you. Yeah. Um, in the side of a... Uh the positive, since I've been throwing all the negative with this commodification out here. Um, I think a really good example that fits within our world pretty well is um, music fantasy camps. So where, I don't know what those are. What? Okay, so you can pay a bunch of money, you know, choose your favorite genre, whatever it is. I mean, they have, yeah. like, everything nowadays. Where you go and spend X amount of days, like, at a cabin, camp out, something like that, where you get to hang out with a bunch of other musicians. You take, like, workshops from other professional guitarists and other, you know, whatnot. They're very popular in guitar. Very. Like, metal and rock, they do them all the time. So, like, they'll have famous people from, 
you know, all these different people, and you'll get to yeah. jam with them at the end and all this stuff. And they do all these things that you, you know, you get to experience what it's like to be a rock star and live as a musician. And not, yeah. a, not a whole lot of professional musicians that I know have gone to these on the, like, attendance side of it. But I also firmly believe that anybody who wants to take a shot at playing music has something to offer if they put the work in. Yeah. So, you know, what? why not? Yeah, so yeah. So I, I, I would deposit those on the positive side of selling an experience, commodifying an experience. Because, you know, most of those people are never going to do anything with music. Yeah. But the experience will be something they'll remember. And, you know, they're still pursuing music. So I could see that as a positive. Yeah. All right, well... I agree. Pick one. I, I would say, you want, do you want to pick one more um, from the list, and then we can finish up? So, well, but the school and the clinic hospital has some good ones for right now. Yeah, let's do it. Because the school one, one that I really liked, is the growing anti-science mystery cults in dissenting and <laughs> radical political movements. <laughs> the mothers of freedom, baby. Oh, I mean, it's right there. <laughs> I mean, shit. It, it, it's just, like, fascinating how spot-on that is. And I don't know, maybe this was something that was prevalent back then. I wasn't alive. I didn't see that going on in schools. But I just, nowadays, I, I just, man, anybody involved in education, I just, I feel for those people. Because they've got to deal with a bunch of angry PTA moms that don't know anything, just spewing secondhand opinions online. Yeah, yeah, I love that one. I also, <laughs> I also think like, cults. I like like it's always amazing how a lot of these ideologies and begin as like pet theories, you know, like a, like a little like oh I uh, I you know I did notice that the Earth didn't look round when I was walking the other day, <laughs> or maybe there is a global conspiracy from the globalists. So there's a bad word that they use, but like um. And then you get in, and then and then it's the Jews, and then it's the you know right like and then it's anti-Semitism and <laughs> oh okay yeah, oh, and then that, like they, oh, and they hit the you back. yeah they hit you with anti and, and it's before because well and but the funniest thing about the flat earthers particularly because that's like the most anti-science group right because there's and I'm I'm gonna there's anti-science flat Earth young Earth creationists I'm not really talking about them although I feel for them. <laughs> There's the there's the ones that are more like they go to like Gaia.com and like he's like is your alien animus coming to inhabit your body you know it's like totally out there stuff that you can only watch as a joke. Oh, and you, I worked you, with a lady who tried yeah. to tell me the Planet X theory. Oh yeah. About how all the races are actually different working classes of alien races and the reason all of them look the way they do is because it's gonna fit our labor roles when they like i i thought she was kidding at the beginning because it's so no. absurd oh, and then God. as soon as she started going into the stuff of like see that's why asians don't have big eyes is they're gonna be the underground workers and i was like oh shit you're racist and believe this shit you're a crazy fucking person oh i'm sorry that's also really funny. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's really bad. That's why I that's thought it was really funny bad. in the beginning. I thought it was silly, and then she's giving me links to websites, and I'm like, oh, I need to stop 
acting nice to everyone. In no, that, yeah, there's nothing Whoa. nice to say about that. You can just say, I mean, that sort of stuff. You just feel like, yeah, this is like, I don't know, I don't know, I, I don't know. But yeah, okay, I don't know about yeah, that. that was, <laughs> but but yeah, at the end of the day, and that one already is like completely racist in like brutal ways. And I think like, you know, what, does she actually list anti-Semitism? Because to me, it's still it still should be it should be on these lists, right? Like, yeah, and I I wonder if it's in one of these because a lot of them are like pretty interconnected. I feel like yeah. I I mean I know she definitely mentions the anti-Semitism in here, but maybe not in these specific lists. I like that one. That's a good one. And then the other one that I really liked was in the clinic hospital section where we have an intensification of reproductive politics in response to world historical implications of women's unrealized potential control of their relation to reproduction. <laughs> also, yeah. throw this fun little one in right after that. Emergence of new historically specific diseases. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> I mean... Okay, first of all, there's always an emergence of new historically specific diseases. So I don't think that one's, like, supposed to be... I think that's always true. Yeah, it just... It, it just <laughs> did coming right out of what we did. But oh, yeah. the one before it is just... Oh, yeah. No, it's great. I mean, and it also is, like, intensification of reproductive politics. Oh, it's so sad, right? But she's predicting that before so many positive movements were crushed. I mean, it's, like, really... There's so many great ideas that don't need a... Yeah, right? I, it's funny. I don't even have anything to say about that one. I just think it's a good one. It, 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 saw it coming. So, you know, may, maybe there were uh, a lot more signs there that this kind of bullshit was coming. Well, Continued I, ideological role of popular health movements as a major form of American politics. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one thing, Preston, I would, I would, um, I would say that I disagree with you on, with like when you're talking about, you know, oh, 1985, spot on. I think some of this stuff, the germ of a lot of this stuff, is is a lot older. I mean, I mean, you know, mm. the the figure of the snake oil salesman in the 19th century, mm. the rise of Mormonism other churches that mirror those snake oil salesman structures are are prevalent you know as soon as Amer whatever American identity is as a nation comes along those those structures it, it, it produces those those results right mm. L. Ron Hubbard mm. I mean you know I think that's happening a hundred years earlier too some of these things, not all of them. I mean, obviously, some of them, some of them are just fortuitous that COVID happened. I mean, not fortuitous, you know. Like, <laughs> but some of them, you're right. They're just reaching a climax now. I hope. Sorry, that was really, really positive. No, sorry. They're, they'll be reaching a climax in the next twenty years. There we go. Sorry, it was horrible. But I think, like, I mean, I've been critiquing myself because as soon as I said Cold War, I was like, oh yeah, you know, Reagan really fomented a lot of this stuff. But before that, the seeds of that were were there with the 
entirely the Cold War was framed at the mm. time, right? Godliness versus non-godliness. Modern versus non-modern, right? Like the communists were not go- only not godly, they were not humanists mm. in the eyes of these... Well, yeah, it in was... In the eyes of the popular conscience. It was us chosen people versus barbarians. Yeah. Mm. But I would say also that being in the MLM capital of the world, I do think there is also credence to what you're saying about just so many health movements that are just wishful thinking about stuff. Oh, only eat. I mean, I mean, I remember Jordan Peterson literally was interviewed one time and he said, I, how, well, what have you been eating lately? I've been eating nothing but beef, salt, and tonic water. <laughs> I mean, it was a weird thing. Beef, salt, and tonic water. <laughs> and it was like, uh, well, that's a terrible idea. I mean, obviously, it's a deeply terrible idea, and anyone who has a PhD in any field should know that. Anyone anywhere should know that. It's not, I'm sorry, it's not really a gate-kept problem. Does he have a PhD? Yeah, he's a, a very, well, he was a really highly published psychologist for a while. A lot of, I think it was on, like, over Maybe 90 publications. Diet of beef, salt, and tonic water rotted his goddamn brain. Jesus. Uh, I think it was, I think in order to, Go on the beef salt water <laughs> diet. You have to have sort of, but but really, I mean, and, and then I would actually say he was a victim of weirdly enough. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that about Jordan Peterson, but I, I do feel a little bad for him. I mean, he was taken in by continued ideological role of popular health oh. movements, right? Like, and as an ideological thing, I think we should, I should at least be careful of like how much agency I put on the person who's going through an ideological mm. issue. Um, but yeah. All right. Uh, any more on this one? Or you want to hit the final? Um, I, uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to dive into? I don't know. The, one of my favorite ones that we've kind of read in here. Yeah. I liked this a lot. It was, it was good. It also was uh, really hard to write. And so it shows Donna Haraway's um, ability to like argue and be a manifesto without without being like there's a specter going across Europe or something right you know what I mean like it's it, it does a sort of non-manifesto manifesto mm. but still definitely succeeds in the in the, in the yeah, way it does I, it. I love the way it was written this is definitely one of the easier things we've read well should hedge easier one of the, uh, I didn't have to spend so many times reading the same thing over and over again before it started clicking like some of our other stuff here, you know? Yeah, I, I just feel that it's not, um, it's nice when you have good writing, too, you know, because a lot of the continental theory is, is good in its, in its lane, almost. I think that's a horrible thing to say, but it loses maybe a certain universal appeal oh yes yeah, or, or more universal appeal and is i mean i mean it's, it's you know like with lacan like uh, you know re- the early seminars are distinctly readable and and very mm. approachable and as soon as like it feels like as soon as he starts getting the idea that he's it's like he's getting people to come on a path with him and that path is just going to go just wherever Lacan decides the path's going to go. <laughs> you, you wind up... I mean, I mean, I don't even know why I'm attacking the seminars as the obscurantism. It's the accree is the problem. I mean, it's the accree that, that you read them and you just are like, 
you get the feeling. I mean, I think I called it literary terrorism. Um, I I think that shows up holding you hostage for those good ideas. I I think I I like him a lot more in a certain literary sense, but I, I think Baudrillard can occasionally be a literary terrorist. Um, not always. I mean, he's often fairly readable, but but it's nice where Haraway is working in America and we're coming up with much it is very clear and uh, yeah I liked it now final thoughts how cyborgy do you feel do you feel more cyborgy now having read the cyborg manifesto that's a good question so I I I think that um I would say tentative yes on that because there are a lot of things that like I've liked the idea of that we've talked of before that she put into literary terms and this may just be my own like reading and finding connection to the way that she's talking about certain things but um while I may feel more cyborgy I do feel as if I could be more of a cyborg <laughs> Well, okay, so... Room for to, more mechanical parts. To do the full dialectic flip that I'm really trying to practice doing. You know, the one I showed you before, that we were talking about before, where I was like, oh, and then the mountains looked not quite as good in the video game. You, you flip around mm. the object. So the, the flip here would be that she didn't do a lot of, because I don't think she's a dialectical thinker, in a sense. Like, I don't think it's a... Now that I'm here, I see this standpoint, but from this standpoint, I see this and therefore mm. I'm different, um, which, uh, so for, for to, to give you a reference point, Zizek is, is an eminently dialectical thinker. Mm. You know, but it is, isn't it not the exact opposite where, you know. Yeah, right? yeah. yes, yeah. So, uh, you know, these flips, I mean, maybe even dialectical isn't always the right word here, but like flips and position. I think that to take her fully at her word and go farther, I think you'd have to say, okay, so I have these parts of me that are machinery i have contacts I have, I have tools i have shoes to a certain degree that tool belt i mean all sorts of things people have pacemakers but i think that the real flip would be to see your organic matter as cyborg to see your feet as machine Ooh. that break and are subject to the laws of machinery and not to the laws mm. of humanism Ooh, that's good. I like that. Does that be our parting thought for the day? I like that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think that's a good way to good way to wrap her up there. <laughs>